Hello, you're listening to the No Fucks Given podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Knight, author of the No Fucks Given Guides, a series of self-help books for people like me who hate being told what to do. Just like the books, the podcast is fun, sweary, and full of tips and techniques for giving fewer, better fucks and living your best life. Let's get to it. First, and as always, thank you so much for listening. If you're not already following the podcast, you can do so at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Stitcher, or really anywhere you get your shows, and then you will never miss an episode, which comes out every Tuesday in 2021. Today is episode 20, and that means it's time for one of my monthly You Asked For It audio advice columns, where I take listener questions and give my best no-nonsense, no-fucks-given answers. If you want to send me a question, you can email podcast at nofucksgivenguides.com. And if you've already sent me a question and haven't heard it yet, never fear, it may come up in a later episode. I read them all, and I just try to mix in a variety of topics each week. So stay tuned, and like I said, follow the podcast, because yours could definitely get answered next month, and then you will not miss it. I've got a bunch of great listener questions to get through today, mixing in personal and professional woes, and some that are much more serious and some that are a little more silly. So listen up, because today I am going to cover Realizing that you're burnt out and or don't give a fuck about your job anymore and how to make a big move. I'm going to talk about not giving a fuck when it comes to emotional and relationship stressors as opposed to relatively unemotional shit like tasks and activities. I'm combining questions from two different listeners who asked about setting boundaries at work, specifically with people who ask too much of you or ask it at inconvenient times family friction when it comes to COVID vaccinations, and what to do when being the responsible friend means you say yes all the time and you're fucking sick of it. And as always, there will be an NFG tip of the week at the end, so listen all the way through for that. And now get ready, because you asked for it. This month's first question comes from a listener who says... I started my first corporate job right out of college and have only been there for a few years but have hated it since the very beginning. I know I haven't been working for very long, but have felt for a while that a professional life in the corporate world is not for me. Your story about how you got out of corporate life and began freelancing and are now living in the Dominican Republic is so inspiring to me. I was wondering if you could go into more detail on how you got the balls and what steps you took to leave the corporate world. Okay, so uh, at the risk of making this all about me at the very top, I get some version of this question pop up in my inbox multiple times a week, so I thought it was probably time to answer it here. And if you've been listening to the No Fucks Given podcast since the beginning, you probably know a few of the data points and a few of the ways that I managed to get out of my soul-sucking 15-year corporate career and down to the tropics as a freelance editor first and then the writer that uh, that you know today and podcaster behind the No Fucks Given Guides and the No Fucks Given Podcast. So I'm going to try not to be too repetitive of that storytelling and really focus on what this listener is asking. And the first part of the question that resonates with me is this idea that having been in the corporate world for however long, just a few years for this listener or 15 years for me, 
Uh, if you know that you don't like it, you don't like it, and that's okay. You know, there's no magic timeline on which you've given it the good old college try. If if you're not vibing with working in the corporate world, then you're totally entitled to say, well, that was a mistake on my part, and I'm going to look for something else that I really can connect with. And that was really difficult for me because I was this type A planner, ambitious overachiever who had a very clear idea of how my career was going to go upon graduating from college with a degree in English and American literature, and I was going to move to New York City, and I was going to work in publishing, and I was going to start at the bottom of the ladder as an editorial assistant and work my way up to publisher of an entire imprint and spend my entire career there. That is what I thought I was going to do. So as time wore on, uh, probably about a decade into that job, or even a little earlier, if I'm being totally honest with myself, and I realized that it wasn't a fit and that things were wrong and that my life in general was suffering as a result of my career choice, it was really hard to take. You know, it was scary. It was unsettling. Uh, it was a bummer. And it took me another five years or so to really wrestle my way through it and get out of it. So what I want to say first to this listener is that if you're having these feelings already, then, you know, you should act on them a lot sooner than I did because you're just setting yourself up for another several years or, God forbid, several decades of the same kind of dissatisfaction that you expressed in your note to me. And I want to add further that because this question centers on a corporate professional type career that doesn't seem to be a match with the person in it, that was the same thing for me. You know, I loved being a book editor in the sense that I loved discovering new writers and I loved collaborating with those writers and bringing their ideas out into the world. And it was really thrilling. And also, I was very good at corporate culture. I was very good at blending in and pretending to be someone who I'm not in order to play that role of colleague and eventually manager myself and, you know, to walk the walk and talk the talk of all of the meetings and the general sort of corporate environment that I was in. But I hated it. And so I also want to say that just because you are good at something does not mean that you have to like it, and it does not mean that you will like it. And there are plenty of reasons for setting aside a career, and it's not necessarily because the job itself, like for me, the editing and the working with writers, is the wrong fit. It could be because the environment as a whole is the wrong fit. And that's why I decided, ultimately, that what I needed to do was go freelance as an editor and writer so that I could work for myself but still in that same industry. And then further to the last two specific points of the question, how did I get the balls to make that move? Uh, I didn't really consider it at the time having balls. I considered it succumbing to desperation. I was so desperately unhappy. I was depressed. I was panic-stricken. My anxiety was running out of control. And I've talked about this on several previous episodes and in my books. Um, it was really a matter of desperation. I had to make a change. And when I sat down and thought about it, I realized that it was my job creating the vast majority of the bullshit <laughs> that was going on for me and that that was the thing I was going to have to seriously 
reevaluate if I had any hope of feeling better. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you were so brave to do that. Uh, But I didn't feel brave. I felt desperate. And then to the very last part of the question, what steps did I take to leave the corporate world? Honestly, that is probably a podcast episode in and of itself. And I walk readers through this in my book, Get Your Shit Together, which was really all about the the next phase of my life after I stopped giving a fuck. Um, And, you know, I'll tell you really quickly now that I approached it in the same way that I've always approached any obligation or any challenge or any goal that I've ever had. Uh, I broke it down into small manageable chunks. Uh, Listeners have heard me talk about that quite a bit as well. But basically, I knew I needed to prepare not only on a financial level to leave my job and be prepared to live the freelance life of a less certain income, but also on a psychological level. This was, as I said at the beginning, a, a huge just massive paradigm shift for me to go from having stability and success in the career I thought I always wanted to walking away from it. And I needed to psychologically prepare myself for that. So in uh, in brief, and like I said, I think I'm going to need to address this on an entire episode going forward, but I took an entire year. I made the realization that I was going to need to leave this corporate world behind And I spent 365 calendar days preparing myself for that act, both financially and, as I said, psychologically. So I guess the way I would boil down this tip for you is that Rome wasn't built in a day. Not everything has to happen uh, tomorrow. You don't have to be so fed up that you have to walk into your boss's office and quit immediately with absolutely no plan in mind. I mean, you can do that if you're a if you're a risk-taking kind of person, but I am a risk-averse person, so that is not how I did it. But uh, in any case, I am here to say that it can be done. So I hope that this has given you a few ideas and a little bit of perspective in how to make it happen for you. And coming up, I'm going to address a related listener question about getting out of a rut in their working life. And my answer to them contains a convenient tip that ties both of these questions together. So keep listening for more You Asked For It. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My next listener question for today is, how do you get yourself out of a rut? I am a social worker and have a really good job, but it's hard and I am frequently stressed and burnt out. And I want to find something different, but at least moderately in my field. As arrogant as it sounds, I feel like everything I find is a little below me in a way, but maybe that's what I need. I'm currently the director of social services at a nursing home, and I'm constantly overwhelmed and basically out of fuck bucks and overdrawn. I have a husband and a toddler, so I feel like I can't just walk out and quit, but I know I need to do something different. I just don't know what it is. Help! 
Okay, well, first of all, I hear you. We all get into ruts sometimes. Some of them are easier to get out of than others. Uh, But especially when it comes to your working life, whether it's a long-term career or just, you know, your nine-to-five that you're in now and you're not really sure if you're going to be in later, we're going to fall into these ruts and we're going to start trying to look for something different. Uh, You know, I've felt like a trapped cat in a corner at work before, and I'll probably feel that way again sometime down the line, but I do totally get it. And it sounds like you recognize from the the literal words in your question that you are probably suffering from burnout. And I am not an expert in burnout, but basically it is the cumulative effects of stress and stressors and anxieties. So this idea that you're feeling kind of ready to chuck it all, even though you have a good job that's leaving you feeling overstressed and overtaxed and overdrawn, you know, leads me to believe that you have gone past the point of no return in terms of burning yourself out. And, you know, one solution to that is really to dial it back, to figure out how to gain some of your time back, to not be putting quite so much effort into your job on a day-to-day basis, uh, to take a vacation, you know, just to take a break from all of that to heal Uh, and replenish from that burnout. And maybe ultimately you will not feel the need to seek a totally different job if you've gotten a handle on your burnout. But maybe it is time for you to look for something different. And I've also had the feeling that like maybe I want to just do something quote unquote lesser because I am operating at this really high level and I'm so sick and tired of being uh, overwhelmed and overtaxed and overburdened. But There are ways to set boundaries both in your personal and your professional life that can prevent that burnout so that you can, if you choose, still work at a very high level in an industry that you're really qualified to be a top dog in without it having to have this really deleterious effect on your mental and physical health. But overall, and I think the underlying principle between the first question that I answered today and this one, is this idea of not really knowing why you feel the way you do or how to get out of it. And particularly when it comes to our jobs, like I said, they take up such an enormous chunk of our lives in general that it can feel really overwhelming to look at them as the source of our unhappiness or the source of our burnout and how do we change that when it is such a big part of our lives. You know, it's like cutting out an absolutely massive tumor. Where do you even begin? So I have a tip and this is from my book, Get Your Shit Together, and it's called the What Why Method. And it's just two steps. You ask yourself, what is wrong with my life? And then you ask yourself, why? And the answers to those two questions should lead you to your goal. So if you're in a rut and you say, what's wrong with my life? And the answer is, I'm really burnt out at work. Then ask yourself, why am I burnt out at work? And the first questioner, I think, would tell us that they're burnt out because they don't like corporate culture. You know, they've realized that part about themselves. But you might answer that question a little differently. What is wrong with my life? I feel burned out at work. Why? And the answers to that could be one of any number of things. You know, you could feel burned out because you have 
a new superior who showed up three months ago and has been, you know, just riding you like crazy and you're not used to it and this is too much. You could feel burnt out at work because there were cutbacks and you have less support staff than you used to. You might be feeling burnt out at work because you have a particular set of patients uh, at this nursing home that you work at who have contributed to a really difficult time for you over the last whatever period. I mean, I'm sure that the COVID pandemic was a very, very difficult time to work in social services at a nursing home. So the answer to your what's wrong with my life and then specifically the answer to why could very likely lead you to a goal that is not shucking it all and finding a totally different job and letting that desperation send you toward a a job or a career that asks less of you uh, and taking something that you feel might be beneath you just to get yourself some relief. The answers to what's wrong with my life and then specifically why might actually point you in the direction of something that could be a much easier fix, you know, a much more narrow zone for you to go in and tweak in your working life that can make your overall experience at your job better. So ultimately, I think the difference between questions one and two on this episode is that the first person knew exactly what was wrong uh, with their working life. They did not want to be in the corporate world anymore. And the second person knows something is wrong but isn't quite sure what it is. Uh, And either way, asking the question, what's wrong with my life and why should help narrow it down and get you to a clear goal. And like I said, those small manageable chunks for making a change. So I hope that that helps not only the first person who wrote in, not only the second person who wrote in, but anybody else who is just feeling kind of unsettled and overdrawn and burnt out uh, and is maybe thinking about making a massive change because they're just so incredibly frustrated they don't know what to do with themselves, narrowing it down and asking what's wrong with my life and why could really help you pinpoint the thing that really needs to change. uh, And that way you don't have to sort of drop a bomb on your entire life just to fix this one uh, discrete area of it. Okay, so that was the what, why method and a little bit long-winded in answering those first two questions. So I'm going to go in for a quicker one. The third question is, it seems like all the fucks I give these days are in terms of emotional situations, not physical like events or things I don't want to go to. What takes up my headspace is relationship BS. Do you have a different decluttering process for relationship stressors that take up your headspace? The short and sweet answer to this person is, no, I do not. Mental decluttering is all the same. You have to discard the things that do not bring you joy, the things that do not serve you, and then you have to organize your life around everything that you have left. And I talk about this at length in my book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. When you are clearing out your mental barn, it is not only... Uh, getting rid of things like tasks and events and obligations and invitations and that kind of nitty-gritty physical stuff that this person referred to. But it is also about clearing out relationships, clearing out emotions and emotional trauma uh, and reactions to things and anxiety and sadness and anger. 
So no, I do not have a, a different process for mental decluttering when it comes to issues of emotions or, or relationships. You still have to decide what do I give a fuck about and what don't I, which means what do I care about and what don't I, and what am I going to give my fucks, my time, energy, and money to? And you give just as much of your time, energy, and money to relationship issues and emotional things as you do to physical things. So you have to be able to stop doing that. It is the same system. It's the not sorry method for mental decluttering. Step one, decide what you don't give a fuck about. Step two, don't give a fuck about those things. Uh, and as I said, you have to be able to discard the things that don't bring you joy or that don't serve you and then organize your life around everything you have left. So I would really encourage you to apply that to whatever emotional situation you're in that, uh, that tempted you to write to me today and see if you can make it work. I think you can. And just as a PS for anybody who doesn't already know, the reason it's called the not sorry method for mental decluttering is that if you implement it with honesty and politeness, which it sounds like you may need to do because these issues of emotions and relationships do uh, affect other people, and so you're going to need to express the fucks that you give and do not give to other people, if you can do that in an honest and polite way, then you've done nothing wrong. You don't have to feel guilty about it, and you have nothing to apologize for. Hence the name, the not sorry method. Coming up, I've got a couple of questions about boundaries in the workplace, but first just wanted to remind you that if you are digging the You Asked For It segment and want to send me your own question for next month, you can email podcast at nofucksgivenguides.com or fill out the form on my website, which is nofucksgivenguides.com. And on the website, you can also find more information on my books, my journals, the page-a-day calendar, sign up for my no fucks given newsletter and all of that good stuff. I'll also be mentioning various things that you can download, flowcharts and quizzes and things like that on the No Fucks Given podcast on any given week. So head to nofucksgivenguides.com if you need any more information. Coming up, a couple of questions about setting workplace boundaries. One listener wrote to me and said, regarding episode six and your must-do list, I work in publishing and I can typically prioritize the work I know I have to do. But where I struggle is when new requests come in from coworkers. I usually try to work on those requests in the order they come in. If the request seems very time-sensitive, I try to get to it as soon as I can. However, during especially busy times, this isn't always possible. My question is, what do you do when someone starts requesting things to be done ASAP when they don't really have to be done that soon? Or with someone who takes advantage of the fact that you typically answer quickly? Okay, I have a lot to say about this, and I want to append a related listener question. Uh, but just in case anybody doesn't know what uh, is referred to when this person says my must-do list from episode 6, it's basically a way of taking your to-do list and narrowing it down by prioritizing by urgency. So this listener is saying they're already really good at putting the stuff that has to get done at the top of their list. And then if somebody else tries to add to their must-do list during the day, they're pretty good at being able to prioritize those requests and take on the ones that seem the most 
time sensitive first. But where they're getting tripped up is when basically other people are not respecting the urgency of the must-do list and are asking for things to be done ASAP that don't really need to be done ASAP or are just expecting a really timely turnaround from this questioner because that's the way that that person has built themselves a reputation in the workplace for better or for worse, okay? So just moving on to a second listener question that's related to all of this, and then I'll answer them both at once. This person says, I've been told I'm good at multitasking, but I don't pride myself on it. I hate not being able to focus on one thing at a time. But at my job, people are constantly coming to me because I'm the shift leader. But I'm also still doing a job, and it's hard to finish my tasks with them asking a million questions. How do I refuse to multitask? All right, I love these questions because they speak to several of my favorite things that I talk about as an anti-guru and the advice that I'm able to give to people to improve not only their working life, but their home lives and other relationships as well. You've got to be able to set boundaries. Um, And, you know, I said also back in episode six when I talked about my must-do list that multitasking is bullshit. There's no such thing as properly multitasking. If you're doing five things at once, you're not doing any of them well. Um, And it would behoove not only you, but also your coworkers to understand that. So when people are coming to you with questions that are interrupting whatever task you're in the midst of, you have every right to set a boundary and to say, I can't talk about this right now. I can schedule some time to speak with you about it when I'm finished what I'm doing. And if you're in the position of being any kind of shift leader or manager, you can explain to that person why it's essential that you or anyone in your position be given the time to uh, suitably finish the task at hand before moving on to helping someone else. It's like putting on your own oxygen mask before helping others. So you need to be able to set a boundary by saying, I can't talk right now. I can't answer that right now, but I've got 10 minutes at X time. Please come back to me with it. Or if this is something you can do in your working world, schedule a once weekly or once every two weeks meeting with the people who report to you. This is actually something that one of my bosses did uh, back in the day. And, you know, he had come in to be the brand new publisher of an imprint with a very large staff. And in part, he was trying to get to know everybody by doing this, but he kept it up throughout the five years that I worked there. We had a regular meeting on the calendar. He did the same thing with each of his direct reports. And so often what I did was I kept a running list of things that I needed to talk to him about. And he had sort of trained me to realize that not every question I had for him or not every piece of information I needed from him Uh, was urgent, uh, that I did not have to ask that question in the moment that it popped into my head. And over time, I was like, oh, I can just put this on my list of things that I need to talk to him about when we sit down. Now, occasionally, there are going to be fires to put out more immediately. But your relationship with your coworkers is going to improve if you're not constantly bothering each other with things that are just not important and interrupting one another from getting their urgent work done. So I would suggest setting a quick in-the-moment boundary, which is, I'm so sorry I can't talk to you about this right now, but if you've got 10 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is, later today or tomorrow morning, I'd be happy to go through it with you. And then secondarily, maybe putting out 
uh, the idea of a regular meeting, like I said, once a week or every two weeks, where people can come to you with non-urgent questions that they can compile over that period of time where you have set aside an appropriate amount of time to listen to them, to help walk them through it. And this serves also to teach them that not every question they have for you is one that they need to interrupt you for uh, at any minute of the day for no particular reason. Related, another great way to set a boundary at work is to shut your door. Uh, if you have the, the luck to work in an office with a door that is closable, keep it closed. That is a really good boundary against people who would poke their heads in and just ask you random shit that is not nearly as urgent as they think it is. Uh, but taking it back to the original questioner who feels really good about their ability to prioritize by urgency but is bombarded with requests from other people who think their shit is more urgent and want to wedge it in there on, on their must-do list for the day, uh, or, as they said, takes advantage of the fact that you typically answer quickly. These are more areas ripe for boundary setting, and one of the best things you can do when somebody asks you to do something ASAP and you recognize that it is not necessarily need to be done ASAP is you can tell them that. You can say, great, got it, understand, just so you know, I have X, Y, and Z things on my list, all of which have sooner due dates or, you know, whatever is the reason that the things on your list are actually more important uh, and more urgent. You can explain that in the moment and you can say, so I will slot this in as soon as I get those done. It might take me until X day to do them. So you have you have accepted the task uh, and you have educated the person who is asking you to do the task on exactly how urgent it is in comparison to all of the other things that you are getting done today. And in terms of people who take advantage of the fact that you typically answer quickly, I have been there. I have so been there. Uh, give it to Sarah. She'll get it done. And then suddenly Sarah has 35 things on her list and everybody else in the office has zero things on their list because they gave it all to Sarah. I'm not bitter. Um, but frankly, you can stop answering so quickly. One of the ways that I have managed to train so many people in my life was when I realized that I did not have to be a compulsive responder. I did not have to indicate, got your message, got your email, right back right away, you know, as soon as people popped up in my inbox, I could take a breather. I could take a day. I could take three days. I could take a week if it was really non-urgent. And so once you start training people, you're going to have to untrain them, it sounds like, but train them into realizing that they are not going to hear back from you at the speed of sound. And that's okay. Basically, in all of the situations that were laid out by these two listener questions and my responses to both of them, there is the idea that you can take some agency. You don't have to be reactive. You don't just have to take the work that somebody dumps in your lap. You don't just have to stop and answer the question in the moment because it was asked. You can take some agency and set some boundaries for yourself and have some go-to phrases in the moment, such as, I can't stop and answer that for you right now, but if you've got 10 minutes or half an hour later today, I'd be happy to sit down with you. You can close your door. You can put on your headphones so it is pretty obvious that you should not be bothered. 
But you can also just slow your own role in terms of being so reactive and responsive and slowly but surely train people not to expect more from you than you are willing to give or capable of giving. And I've done this myself and it definitely works. So I urge you to go out there and try it and hopefully it will make your working life that much more pleasant, uh, that much easier for you to get through in any given day. It's actually going to improve your colleagues' lives as well. Everybody is going to be just that much happier about being at work with everyone else if there isn't this underlying tension and friction of some folks taking advantage of others. They might not even know they're doing it. Um, And at this point, you know, you're the one who has the ability to make a change in these situations. So good luck out there. Uh, And if you want to tell me how it goes, feel free to email me podcast at nofucksgivenguides.com. I'm always happy to hear if my advice has reached its intended target. Okay, folks, we have two more questions to go before we do a little recap of everything I talked about today and then move on to the NFG tip of the week. The first of those questions is, my mother turned anti-vax later in life and refuses to get the COVID-19 vaccination. I've only seen her a handful of times in the last year, and she got angry with me when I would wear a mask or try to social distance from her or not hug her. I don't want to see her unless she gets vaccinated, but I also don't want this to ruin our relationship. How would you convince her to give a fuck and get her shot? Okay, well, this is a very loaded question, and I have gotten some form of it from several listeners, and actually listeners who were on the other side of it, who were feeling pressured to get the vaccination by their family members. Um, The first thing I am going to say is that I personally, Sarah Knight, believe in vaccinations. I think that getting the COVID-19 vaccine will save lives. It could potentially save your life. It could save the life of your loved ones. And I think that generally speaking, it is the right and ethical and moral decision to make, and we should all be doing it. That said, I understand, believe me, I understand because I live among people who do not necessarily think the same way I do, um, that there are lots of different opinions out there. And I do not think that it is likely that you are going to change the mind of someone who is rigidly anti-vax. I suppose it's possible. And if you have the wherewithal to try and do it, then more power to you. Uh, But I doubt that they are going to budge. I think probably the better question is how can you stop giving a fuck about the fact that your mother refuses to get this vaccine since, as you said, you don't want it to ultimately ruin your relationship. And for the record, I think that too is a tall order. Uh, There are folks that I know and really like and respect uh, who I have realized are not going to get this vaccine and it has rubbed me the wrong way and I have had to think really hard about how I'm going to continue forward in having relationships with them. There are also people who I dislike and don't respect who are anti-vaxxers and it was really easy to wash my hands of them over the course of the last 14 months. But speaking about someone with whom you do want to still be able to have a relationship, 
probably what I would do if I was in this situation with a beloved family member is I would have one really hard conversation. I would say, I need to have a conversation with you that is not going to be pleasant for either of us, but I need to say everything that I have to say that is on my mind and know that I said it so that I can sleep at night knowing that I tried, knowing that I explained myself, and I'm going to tell you right now, I am going to grant you the fact that we don't have to talk about it again, that I will put this in the rear view, but what I'm going to need from you is to let me say my piece. Uh, And this could be a way for you to get your resentment, your frustration, your anger, your anxieties out there on the table and out of your brain. Uh, You know, science will tell you that journaling is a great way to combat anxiety, and it's because it helps you get all of these feelings and these conversations that you might be having on repeat in your own brain out there onto the page. And so perhaps you need to be able to say all of these things that are currently pent up inside your mind to your mother. And you can warn her that they may hurt her feelings, that she may not understand them. You can say, I am very angry, sad, frustrated, puzzled, etc. by your behavior. But in order to preserve our relationship going forward, I can agree to disagree with you and not speak of it again. However, I do need you to hear me out. And that might be one way for you to get all of this out of your head uh, and out into the open. Maybe it will even make a difference if she sees that you are that troubled, you know, that you are that at your wit's end by her decision making. Perhaps it will change her mind, but at least you will have said your piece. And in the case of, as I said, my personal relationships with folks that don't believe in vaccines or that haven't followed the health guidelines for the benefit of their fellow human beings to the extent that I think they should have over the course of the last year and change, um, explaining that to them and saying my peace has helped. It doesn't necessarily change their behavior, but it can relieve some of the burden in my own mind of having said, well, Sarah, you tried to spread the word. You tried to explain why these things are important. um, And, you know, you did your best. In the end, my advice on this comes down to something that I say all the time, which is control what you can and accept what you can't. And I think it's probably incumbent on you to accept the fact that you are unlikely to change your mother's mind on this, but you can control the way you express your feelings to her, and you certainly can control whether or not or how often or under what circumstances you see her. Uh, Presumably, if you have managed to get yourself vaccinated, then we are finding out more and more that the science says you are highly unlikely to get COVID-19, and therefore you are highly unlikely to inadvertently pass it on to her. So, you know, maybe you can see her even though she remains unvaccinated. Um, she is basically taking on that risk on her own, you know, to her own health. And maybe you don't have to feel as bad about it or as anxious or nervous about it as we did months ago when we weren't sure about how effective the vaccines were or certainly um, many, many months ago when we weren't sure, you know, if we were even asymptomatic carriers that we might bring this deadly virus into our family's homes. Um, At least now, 
you have some control over your own health, over whether you become a vector. And you can say to herself, you know, she has made these decisions. And um, if she is okay with the risk that she is taking, then I can be okay with that too for the sake of not ending our relationship. But it is a really thorny issue. I'm sure that millions of people around the world are experiencing it in some form or another right now. And I am very sympathetic to it and hope that even just talking it out a little bit on this silly F-bomb-filled podcast has helped you wrap your brain around a few different ways that you might be able to move forward. Okay, last you asked for it question before we get to the NFG tip of the week. And this episode is running long. So I don't know, guys, it's just you've sent me so many questions. I have so many things to get through. Um, the last question is, I need some guidance. I've always been the responsible friend of the group, and I'm constantly being asked for favors, and I struggle to say no. If I muster up the courage to say no, I'm left with this lingering feeling of guilt. I want to be a friend people can confide in, but I also want to be able to say fuck no without feeling bad. Any advice? Oh, my little fuckling, I have so much advice on saying no. I wrote that whole book about it called Fuck No, um, but it has an entire chapter on favors and, you know, and being asked for things, not just to do things, to pick things up on your way to a party, to spot somebody some cash to help them move, but also something that you mentioned in your question, which is giving of yourself when people want to confide in you, when they want to unburden themselves on you. And the short and sweet answer is there are lots of different ways to say no uh, that are non-confrontational, that are not mean, that are not rude. And also, you don't have to go into a lot of detail. You can say things like, alas, I'm not available. You can say, that's not going to work for me. Uh, I like that in addition to saying that won't be possible because it doesn't call your competence into question. You're saying that the thing they have asked of you is not possible. Uh, the thing they have asked does not work for you, not that you can't do it. So that's one that I like. I also like this idea of referring to the precedent. If you have a friend who is constantly asking you favors, you can remind them in your no response of the last favor or four that they asked of you. And you can do it in what some people might view as a passive-aggressive way, but what I think can be, you know, just kind of like a sneaky but uh, but effective way of being like, you know, I did this the last three or four times and I just can't do it again. But really, honestly, my favorite way to handle a friend who is asking too much, whether it's, you know, a favor or a task uh, or to get some advice uh, when they kind of abuse the privilege too often is to just be really easy breezy about it and say no can do. You know, you don't have to offer too much explanation. I have a friend who I dearly love who is one of those people who is always asking you to pick up something on your way. Um, it is because they are rather flighty and don't prepare very well for things like parties and gatherings and are always figuring out at the last moment that they need somebody else to pick up the thing that they forgot to get. Um, and it's not in and of itself an unreasonable request, but the fact that it happens all the time, you know, means that I just don't want to have to do it all the time. And so periodically I will say, no can do, see you later. As I said, you don't have to be mean. You don't have to be rude. 
you're allowed to say, can't do it. Um, and then they can always ask somebody else. And I don't want to give you short shrift here, but this episode is running really long. So I do want to say I did a whole episode, I believe it was number three, way back when, number three of the No Fucks Given podcast that was all about saying fuck no. And uh, it addressed all kinds of different no's that you might need to say, people that you might need to say them to, and different, um, you know, sort of templates for saying no. You can also go to my website, nofucksgivenguides.com and download my fuck notes. You'll find them on the fuck no book page and on the downloads page. And they're basically like Mad Libs for saying no. So it should give you an idea, a template of ways that you can approach saying no, whether it's to friends or whether it turns out to be to family or colleagues or partners or your own children um, in a way that means you don't have to feel guilty about it. Because you have been honest and polite, just like the not sorry method says that I talked about earlier on this episode, as long as you are honest and polite about setting your boundaries, you have done nothing wrong, you have nothing to feel guilty about, and you have nothing to apologize for. You are not sorry. So check out the various fuck no related materials that you can download from my website and also go there looking for episode three of the podcast, which is all about saying fuck no, sticking to it, and being heard. Okay, time for a quick recap of what we talked about today and then your NFG tip of the week. I gave some advice on dealing with burnout, on being in a rut, and on making a big move, and specifically advice on listening to yourself when you realize that you are not, in fact, in the career that you're going to want for the rest of your life, even if you used to think it was what you wanted. I talked about the fact that there is no difference in my mind between not giving a fuck about uh, physical, unemotional shit like tasks and activities and invitations and not giving a fuck about emotional and relationship stressors. It's all the same form of mental decluttering. We talked about setting boundaries at work, uh, about setting real physical boundaries like shutting your door, but also just in-the-moment boundaries, explaining to people why you can't do or why you do not wish to do exactly what they have asked of you in the precise moment that they have asked it and why that is okay. Um, We talked about family friction, and this can extend to friends and other loved ones with regard to the COVID-19 vaccinations, and uh, my heart goes out to everybody who is dealing with that right now. And finally, talked about what to do when being the responsible friend means you get walked all over and asked for all kinds of favors that you are unwilling or unable to give. And finally, this week's NFG tip of the week is another way to give no fucks. It's another way to think about the idea behind not giving a fuck. And that is to mentally repeat to yourself the phrase, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it is a really helpful phrase for when you have no control over what is going on. I'm always talking about how you can control what you can and accept what you can't. You know, there are some things in life that it's relatively easy to let go of, but a sense of righteous indignation is not one of them. And so I find myself, when it comes to giving or deciding to not give a fuck about certain things that are really upsetting to me or that I cannot control, just thinking over and over again, like a mantra, it's just not worth it. This conversation, this fight, these feelings, they're just not worth it. 
I just can't give a fuck about these anymore. I can't spend my time, energy, and money worrying about it because it's just not worth it. And I find it very helpful. I hope you will too. And that is going to do it for episode 20 of the No Fucks Given podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you don't already, please follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so you never miss an episode. They'll go straight to your library every Tuesday when they come out. And if you like what you heard, please throw me a rating or review. I would really appreciate that too. Like I said, you can visit nofucksgivenguides.com for the show notes to the podcast, downloads of things I've mentioned on here, more info about my books, my No Fucks Given newsletter, and all of that good stuff. And until next week, I'm Sarah Knight. No Fucks Given, not sorry. Sorry.